I have great faith in the forgetfulness of my hearings. And just to remind you that the last time I was with you, which was June last year, I spoke then on Jesus in prayer. Tonight, I want us to just think about Jesus on prayer. Because if you've got your Bible opened, and you turn with me to our reading from Mark 11, verses 22 onwards deal with Jesus on prayer. It's a master class on faith and prayer. But you know, I'm positive as I read that 11th chapter that I can't divorce the happenings of the previous day from what happened on that Tuesday. Let's put it into context a little bit, shall we? Verse 12 begins with the next day. So that means it's Monday morning. It's the day after Palm Sunday, the triumphant, joyful entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. They're singing Hosanna. He goes out into Bethany, maybe because there's not enough room for him. At Passover time in Jerusalem, there's no lodgings there. He's quite used to that. There was no room for him when he arrived first in this world at Bethlehem. He goes out to Bethany, has a night's lodging, but maybe it was on a room-only basis, not bed and breakfast, because it tells us clearly that he was hungry. He was hungry. And he sees a fig tree, and because it has no fruit on it, he curses it. Now, I want to ask a question here, and I want to do it very reverently, if I may. But is the Lord Jesus Christ acting like a divine spoilt brat here? Is it because he's hungry? And his expectation is that he should go to the fig tree. And because there's no fruit on it to satisfy his hunger, he curses it. Is this a sign of petulance? And you know when he's teaching on prayer later on in the chapter, and he says, you can ask what you want to, and if you believe it from your heart enough, you'll get it. Is he teaching that we as Christians are spiritually spoilt brats also, that we can get whatever we want if we ask with an intense desire. What is this passage teaching? It's not that easy to understand. And please, I think you know me well enough by now, I am no deep theologian. But let's unpack it if we can together tonight, shall we? I'm given to understand that a man called Victor who lived in Antioch was probably the first commentator on Mark's gospel. And he lived in the fifth century. And he puzzled long and hard over this 11th chapter. He comes to this conclusion that Jesus used the fig tree to set forth the judgment that was about to fall on Jerusalem. 
it was a prophetical symbol rather than a sign of petulance. He knew that in Jeremiah chapter 7, the writer there referred to Israel as a fig tree. And he understood that the people of Israel would have understood that. And here is Jesus using a visual aid foretelling prophetically the judgment of God that would fall on Jerusalem. It happened A.D. 70. Jerusalem was razed to the ground. A million Jews were slain. The remainder were scattered throughout the nations of the world and only returned to their Israel homeland last century. The judgment of God on the fig tree. But the fig tree was in leaf at the Passover time. And notice it was not the season for figs. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus going to the fig tree and cursing it when it's another six weeks to harvest time for the fig tree? A man called Christie, who came from Scotland, was a missionary in Palestine, and he made a study of the fig tree at Passover time. And he noted that on the fig tree there were nodules or nodes or little knobs where the fruit would emerge. They were the fruit in embryo. Actually, in Passover time, you could see whether the tree would bear fruit or not. The conclusion of thinking is this, that did Jesus didn't just stamp his foot and curse the tree because he was hungry, but because that tree was symptomatic of his people, it was not doing what God had created it to do. It was not fulfilling the divine purpose and the judgment fell. Keep it in mind. He moves on that Monday morning and he comes to the temple. This is the house of prayer. But it had become a center of trade. It was a marketplace. It was a place of sacrifice, and sacrificial animals were bought and sold there, of course. But here, currency was exchanged. Because if anyone had brought in the Roman currency with a picture of the emperor on it, that would have been blasphemous in God's house. They must use the old shekel, and so it must be changed. But we're given to understand here that the money changes were profiteering. And Jesus got very, 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 very concerned about this. This also was the court of the Gentiles. 
This was the outer court wherein was a middle wall of partition, and the Gentiles were permitted to come in and pray to the God of Israel. But this was not conducive to prayer. If you really want to pray, oftentimes you want to get away quietly. And this was not conducive to prayer. It was noisy, busy, corrupt. This place had been abused, corrupted, spoilt. The purpose for which God intended it was not being fulfilled. So the judgment of God came upon it. Remember in one of the Gospels, Jesus took a bundle of cords and he overthrew the tables and he whipped out the money changers. Notice who got upset. Wouldn't you have thought that in the Roman fort, just next door to Herod's temple, that a quaternion of soldiers would have come into the temple area on the mount there and sorted out the disturbance? But instead, those who got upset were not the Roman soldiers, but it was the priests and the teachers of the law. Isn't it amazing that when the status quo is ruffled, the powerful people get upset. And the powerful people got upset with Jesus, and from that day on, they discussed how they might kill him because he was popular with the people. It upset them because it challenged their position. The following day, Jesus is coming back into Jerusalem. And Peter, again, is the mouthpiece for the disciples. And he says, look at the fig tree. It's withered to its roots. Remember the prophetic point, the judgment of God falling on the nation of Israel because they're not fulfilling the divine purpose. Remember the temple and the judgment of God falling because it's not fulfilling the divine purpose. The judgment of God falls where there is no fulfilling of the divine purpose. In general terms, what is the divine purpose? Surely, the commandments, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength. And Jesus said, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these are the chief commandments, the divine purpose, to love God wholeheartedly and to love people wholeheartedly. 
all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God's never, ever rescinded that first command. And his command is for all men everywhere. And that includes the British. Especially those of us with a stiff upper lip to worship God wholeheartedly. If there's anything that God hates, it's lukewarm worship. Lukewarm worship. Churches don't close because congregations get old. Churches don't close because populations move. Churches don't close because churches don't do. Churches close because churches don't do what God intends us to do. And God intends us to worship Him wholeheartedly and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The other great intention of God is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the last commission. The greatest command and the last commission reveal the heartfelt purpose of God for the people of God. And so the purpose of God is to love him wholeheartedly and to share him with the whole world. And it's where that doesn't happen, the judgment of God. And it's at that point that Jesus introduces them to the subject of prayer. And he says, this is the key thing about praying. He said, it's not location, location, location when it comes to prayer. You don't have to go to the temple to pray. You and I don't have to go to Jerusalem in order to pray. It's not location anymore. It's attitude, faith. Jesus says, is important. And then the end of that section talks about forgiveness as well. Faith in him and forgiveness of one another. That, uh, those are the attitudes regarding prayer. Those who know me know I love my food. Those who know me best know I love my desserts. The first time I ever had pavlova, I was sitting in Dublin Airport waiting to catch the airplane back to Stansted. I'd been preaching throughout the south of Ireland and I was with Stanley and Shirley Hay and we were sitting in their car in the car park and we had lots of time to kill and she brought this meringue miracle out. Meringue, cream, almonds, strawberries, and grapes. It was absolutely beautiful. It was my, I said, what's that, Shirley? She said, that is a pavlova. I've tried to eat one every day since. Beautiful. <laughs> 
And she told me this story. She said, Brian, and this is absolutely true. Brian, she said, my family are Christians. She said, I come from a Christian family, and living in Dublin in those days, they were a very persecuted minority. But she said, we were well known in the city as Christians. And she said, I had a lovely sister, a little bit older than me, a lovely sister, and she was a nurse in the local hospital. She trained there, and she met a young doctor from South Africa. And their eyes met in a crowded room. And she fell in love. And they got engaged, got a long story short. And her parents converted, they were in a Victorian three-story, and they converted the top story into a flat for her fiancé. One Sunday afternoon, she was missing, but that was usual probably. She was up in the flat with her fiancé. She didn't come down for tea, but that was okay. She didn't come down to go to evening service, but that was okay. She didn't come down for supper. Actually, they searched the place for her, and they couldn't find her. They reported her to the police to cut again a long story short. Forensically, they discovered the remains of her body in their own incinerator down in the cellar. That Sunday afternoon, her fiancé had murdered her and then surgically dissected her body and carried it in carrier bags down the stairs into the cellar and burned it. As Shirley told me the story, I could see her choking up. But she said, you know, Brian, my mother is an absolute saint. The man was put in prison, and then he was extradited back to South Africa. But she said, within a month of him put in prison, she applied to visit. And when she went to visit him, she told him that he had murdered her lovely daughter, but that she was a Christian. And God had sent his only begotten son to die on the cross to forgive her. And so she would forgive him. And there was a God in heaven, if only he would repent of his sin, who would forgive him also. And she kept going back to visit him. And she kept sending him literature. Shirley said, Brian, I could never do that. I could never do it. As I sat in that car, I thought to myself, and I thought, never. Apart from the grace of God, I can't think anybody could ever do a thing like that. But that's apart from the grace of God. Jesus said that it is incumbent upon those of us who are forgiven to forgive. It is an underlying principle within the New Testament. And it's not normal, and it's not natural, but it is miraculous. So with God, it's possible. And Jesus said, when we come to pray, it's not just faith, it's forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but when I come to pray... 
David Watson used to say, sometimes I can become the professional in prayer. I mentioned this last June. Sometimes I can become very professional in prayer. I can be the professional, and I know in my heart I'm being the professional. I can teach about prayer. I can pray in public. And sometimes I know it's not prayer. And sometimes I know that my prayers don't reach above the ceiling. But sometimes, when I get right through, and I touch the very throne of God, and I know the tingling excitement of being in His holy presence, when I get up off my knees, I'm somehow Prayer changes things, but prayer changes us. And I don't know about you, and if you read the Psalms, I think the psalmist felt the same way. I can only put it like this, that when I pray and when I get right through, it's like as if God switches on a light in the back of my head. I can't put it any other way. And it just floods my soul with the morning star. And I'm through. And when I'm in the presence of God, I, I may have started with what I want, but when I'm in there, it becomes, what do you want, Lord? What do you want? Let me illustrate. When I first came to Suffolk, I came to a little village in the north of Suffolk, a little village called Horham near I, this area, that area. There was one of our deacons there. He was a farm worker, semi-literate. His name was Sam, semi-literate. And um, Sam was diagnosed. He was only 49, and he was diagnosed with a tumor in his throat, in the esophagus here. And we began to pray for Sam. And we began to pray in the way we should pray. We began to pray in faith, believing, and we began to pray that God would heal Sam. But do you know, if I'm absolutely wide open, honest, we were probably praying with, I hope you'll heal him. Do you know that Sam came to see us one Wednesday morning? Our prayer meeting was on a Wednesday night, and he came to see me. He couldn't get out of the car by this stage, and he was speaking in a whisper, and he said, last night, God told me that, uh, God told me that he wasn't going to heal me, but he was going to use me before I died. So he said, tonight at the prayer meeting, will you thank the people for praying for me? I am so grateful. But would you please get them to pray that the Lord would use me? So I went to the prayer meeting. Some of the people cried in the prayer meeting when I told them. We were losing Sam. But you see, we were praying at one level as a church with compassion, but almost, I hope you'll heal him. But Sam was going through it himself, and he was got to the stage where the light had been switched on, and he was saying, God, what do you want to do with me? 
God revealed to him that God wasn't going to heal him. God didn't heal him. But boy, did God use him. He only had three more months to live. Boy, did God use him. The blessing we saw at Horam, it, I am too f- afraid to talk about it. But do you know that I can almost pinpoint it to a semi-literate farm worker who never preached in his life, but who touched God, got an answer to his prayer, and was released to serve the Lord, and he led more people in that three months to the Lord than he'd ever done in the previous 49 years. And you know, some of those men now that he led to the Lord then are now offices in the church there at Horam. And all of them are tremendously going on with God. One family, father and mother got saved at that time. That was his primary burden, was Herbie Havis to get saved. And Herbie Havis got saved. Herbie Havis is 94 now. He was 94 this month. And Herbie Avis is all his family, sons and daughters and his grandchildren, all have been saved. And it was dear old Sam, you know. When I left Harem, I went to Northern Ireland. Boy, can they pray in Northern Ireland. Do you know that they had a prayer meeting on a Friday night and the Bible study on a Tuesday night? Now, in the Tuesday night, there was almost 200 at the Bible study. Came to the prayer meeting on the Friday night, there was 120 at it. But when we came to pray, all we did was have a hymn, read a psalm, and interpret, and we were in the church. 120 of us in the church praying. But when I opened it up to prayer, it was my first prayer meeting there. About a dozen men prayed, and it felt like it was the prayer they'd always prayed. Do you understand me? Yeah? The prayer they'd always prayed. Now, please, these were good men. Good men. But that's how it felt. And the prayer meeting was as dead as a dodo. And you know, the deacons came to me after, and they were so excited. They said, you know, about 50 to 60 of those people here tonight were here for the first time. Well, I thought they won't come back. (laughs) They won't come back. You know, it takes sometimes a new initiative, doesn't it? Just there's people waiting to do things, but they're embarrassed to start doing things. And it just takes a new initiative. And I was coming in new, and they came to the prayer meeting. So on the Sunday, I pled with the congregation to come to the prayer meeting. It wouldn't be as bad as last week. (laughs) I said, we'd go into groups, and we'd go all around the church, and there'd only be a dozen of us in there, and we'd all be able to pray. And that's what we did. So we met at half past seven. We went into groups. Well, when they came back at nine o'clock, their faces were red. They were buzzing. Some of them had prayed for the very first time. And then I said, I wonder if the men would like to stay behind with me to pray. Thirty-five men stayed behind. And we went into the little room and we started to pray and we got victory over the clock. Now, in the churches that I've belonged to in Suffolk, nobody prays after quarter to nine at a prayer meeting night because <laughs> that's the time we're supposed to finish. Oh, I wish we could get the victory. Anyway, 
These men began to pray. Some of them sat and prayed. Some knelt to pray. Some, and this was in a congregational church. Before ever the word charismatic was invented. But they had got used to praying. And we said, well, we'll pray from about quarter past nine onwards until we feel we've got the victory and we get to a place of faith in prayer and then we can turn to praise and then we can go home. Sometimes it was 11, sometimes it was one, sometimes it was three. I'll never forget the night, the Friday night, when we were praying together and some men from Carrickfergus were in and they were praying for a man called Ian Dugan. They had a burden for this man, Ian Dugan. His wife had left him. He was just starting on a new business. He got a little daughter and he was on the verge of a nervous breakdown and he used to come to our Sunday school. Didn't come to church now, but he used to come to Sunday school. Never ever met him, Ian Dugan. And you know, when people have got a burden, isn't it infectious? And these men were praying for him, pleading with God, and the rest of us were in there praying for Ian Dugan. Now, as true as I stand in your presence and in the presence of God, about ten past eleven that night on our big oak front door, we had an iron ring and it was knocked. And I left the prayer meeting, and I went to the door, and I unbolted the door. And in the dark, there was a man standing. I'd never seen him before in my life. And he just said to me, my name is Ian Dugan. I've had to come here tonight, and I don't know why. Sharp intake of breath. Gob smacked. I didn't know what to say. I brought him in for a split second. Do I take him in the vestry and counsel him, or do I take him in the prayer meeting? Take him in the prayer meeting. And in the prayer meeting we went. And some of the men who were praying for him didn't know he was there, so they carried on praying. And then the others were praying with one eye open and knew he was there. And it got around that he was there. And that night we saw young Ian Dugan sob his way to the Lord cry to God for mercy and grace and help. And he just handed over his life to Jesus Christ that night. And we saw something like a burden rolled off him and a new light come upon Ian. And we praised the Lord together as he sought the Lord. Not last summer, but the summer before, I was over in Northern Ireland, I had a phone call. He says, Brian, it's Ian. It's Ian Dugan. I said, how are you doing, Ian? Fine, he said, fine. I said, did your wife come back? No, 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 never did come back. But he said, I've got my daughter. And he said, my business is not Ian Dugan and son, it's Ian Dugan and daughter. And he said, she's in business with me and she loves the Lord as well now. And you know, he said, I have an account which is the Lord's account in my business and I've been able to support mission throughout the world. And you know, Brian, he said, I've been to missionary, mission fields all over the world to share my testimony. And you know, he said, do you remember that night? I said, Ian, I'll never forget that night. Never 
ever, ever. He said, you know what? He said, I've won Businessman of the Year that many times in Northern Ireland, I can't tell you. He said, Brian, God's blessed me. God has blessed me. Jesus on prayer. Pray with an attitude of faith and with an attitude of forgiveness. And God answers. God always answers prayer. He either says no. He often says wait to me. Often. Do you know why? Because I'm impatient. So he often says wait. But there are times where he says yes immediately. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. You won't give up on prayer, will you? Don't give up in prayer. Don't ever give in. Don't ever give up. And you'll be tempted to. You'll be tempted to over and over and over and over again. And don't think that when you get older it gets easier because that's not right. Look at the old man in front of you. Hey, do you know that my last birthday I was 60? I'm getting... Hey, will you get to my age? Never mind sniggering there. <laughs> Margaret, behave. I know how old you are. <laughs> Don't we all? If you want to get a buzz in life, there is no buzz like prayer. Am I right? Honest. There is no tingling excitement on earth like being in prayer in the presence of God. And you've got a lifetime to learn. And we're still on a learning curve. Amen? Still on a learning curve. But the two main attitudes are faith. And faith isn't determination, it's submission. And forgiveness. And I don't think probably many of us have got the murder of our daughter to forgive, have we? Probably not. Probably something far less. But it niggles away. If Shirley was here tonight, she'd say to me, Brian, tell them, I'm still an emotional mess. But my mum isn't. What a story. But what a God. Amen? Let's sing about the grace of God, shall we?